Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are looking for your support. As you know by now, the Tortoise Shack relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. And the best way to do it, in fact, the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis is join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. Click on it. Have a look around. There's over 1,300 podcasts there, all plea free. Our entire back catalogue, including everything from Reboot Republic, Echo Chamber, Police, Glow West, Shrapnel, and lots and lots and lots of members-only exclusives. And if that's not enough of an incentive, you will be getting the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are keeping the podcast free for everybody and helping keep the mics on at this left-leaning progressive podcast platform. If you're listening to this before Thursday, the 28th of September, we will be live in the Sugar Club in Dublin City Centre that evening. We have a fantastic lineup, including two very special guests of former, what you would call, RT talent, who are about to blow the whistle on what has gone on in terms of two-tier work practices. Tickets for that are at the bottom of this podcast. It's, it's the eventbrite.ie link. And if none of that floats your boat, you can still help us by recommending us to a friend. We rely on you. Word of mouth. No ads. No sponsors. But please do consider clicking on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality and beyond. Today, we are talking to Leilani Farah. Um, who is the director of the Global Movement on Housing for Right to Housing, The Shift, and also former um, UN Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing and great friend of the podcast. Lilani, it's great to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yes. Listen, Lilani, you've been doing so much um, in terms of housing and, you know, you were in Palestine as well recently enough, I think you were, in terms of um, you know looking at issues there, and we'd love to chat to you about that. But also, we want to talk in this podcast. You're, you, where is housing at globally? You know, we've seen me, myself, and yourself were, you know, have been criticizing and critiquing the financialization of housing for many years. This conversion of housing into assets. And when we look back at COVID and we look at the pandemic and we now look at this period of inflation that we're in, um, there's, you know, some cities, we just see New York moving against Airbnb. Um, you know, we're seeing France increase its taxes on vacant housing. What is your sense of where are we at in terms of that broad process of this grab of housing as financial assets by global real estate funds, the wealthy, are they still, you know, going as hard as ever? Are governments still facilitating them? We see it here in Ireland. But is that still, or is there some sand been thrown in the wheels by different cities, by the economic change and economic situation? What's your assessment of where we're at? Oh, I think the global institutional investors in housing continue their march toward all available assets, not even just distressed assets anymore. They're pretty much going after anything they can get their hands on that they feel they can turn some profit from. Um, so th I think that just continues. And what's shocking about that in the Northern Western Hemisphere not all of your listeners will know, but, you know, interest rates have gone way up. Mm. And one would have thought that might have slowed that march and yeah. that, those acquisitions. But in fact, for for these guys that we're talking about, and they are mostly guys, um, those high interest rates don't really have an impact on them for a variety of reasons. One, they have so much liquidity and so much money a, a few percentage points d doesn't necessarily matter for them. But another thing is they structure all sorts of deals and have access to all sorts of money at lower interest rates. So 
while we, the average person, are struggling to pay our mortgage as our mortgage interest rates increase to 5%, 10%, depending on where you live, that doesn't apply to them. So I think they just are continuing doing what they do. That being said, Rory, you already highlighted some really interesting examples of the pushback that is happening mm-hmm. That's that I think we're starting to see more of. Um, just this week, the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the United Nations finally said that housing unaffordability is a global crisis and a global issue. And we haven't had the High Commissioner say that before. So that's that was important. Um, you know, the rapporteurs, we've been saying that. I yeah. said it in my tenure. My predecessor said it in her tenure. The current rapporteur presumably is saying it in his tenure. So um, it is good that the head of the UN has finally come around to recognize that this is a global human rights crisis, right? That's the important thing there. The, the last thing I'll say for a long-winded answer is... Um, while I think it's cool that New York is pushing back against Airbnb, very, very cool. And as you said, France, um, um, or was it just Paris? But anyway, taxing vacant homes, etc. All of these are really good moves. But I think you and I know, Rory, that that's a little bit like tinkering, tinkering at the margins, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a, a, a little policy here, a little policy there. And I, I think what you and I are after, and I don't want to speak for you, but we really want a fundamental shift in how people view housing overall, right? And how systems engage housing. And so we need more transformational change where, where we go back to the basics. Housing's a human right. It's a social good. We have to ensure that those who are the most vulnerable have access to it and can afford it. And these tinkerings won't change or won't fundamentally change market value right? Or market-driven housing. And so I, I, while I want to applaud these efforts, I also want to say it's not enough. Lilani, yeah, can I, I ask just, a question? Sorry, Tony. Just, 2019, you, you, uh, you wrote a letter to the Irish government and warned about the financialization of housing and how early 2019 and how it was going to impact our inability to actually have a, have a home, you know, the fina- uh, how people were going to be paying extortionate rents. It, you basically wrote what was come to, what was going to come to pass. But I recall a few months later, I think it was June, the Finance Minister Time wrote a lengthy reply to you saying, you know, uh, no, we, we actually refute all your claims now. And I know this is not, you know, Rory, you want to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but specifically to Ireland, you must have watched from afar now as uh, your words, unfortunately, have played out like a dystopian novel and the, what was said back to you. Um, it hasn't stacked up, Lalani. Have, have you have have you thought about that since then? Of course. You know, when you're a rapporteur and you do the job. So by 2019, I'd been in the in the job for five years. You start to be able to be a bit predictive, right? Because you're mm-hmm. you're seeing so many things around the world, you know, unfolding. And there were a number of things that I mean. I didn't need to predict in the case of Ireland. It was already happening and, and Rory had exposed that to me and, and thank you for that, Rory. And, and Rory helped me understand what was happening in Ireland and the, and the impact and the long-term impact. So, I mean, I didn't come to that on my own, right? It's the people on the ground who know this stuff and who are already suffering. Often by the time we as rapporteurs or lawyers or whatever, identify something people on the ground are already experiencing it and suffering it and um you know we can see the trajectory if not if no change happens then this is only going to deepen and get worse and so so i could see back then in 2019 that the writing was on the wall i didn't realize it would take so long for kind of the world to wake up to this like we're you know here we are in 2023 and now i think the term financialization of housing is more common i think the global understanding of 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 this is increasing but it's it's taken a little longer than i 
thought it would. There are other things one, you know, I, I predicted at the beginning of the pandemic that homelessness would increase. And that, in fact, has happened in many, yeah. many countries. And I mean, you know, when you've been doing this long enough, you're just able to sort of, you can say, oh, well, I know the impact of this structural yeah, Well, if I, if I can just make a point on that, Lelani, at the time I looked at January 2019, I think there was just over... Um, it was a mix about nearly 8,000 people were homeless coming, creeping up at the end, but it was only, you know, only, I say, 8,000. That's horrendous. Now we're, now we're hitting 13,000, you know, and, and that's yeah, people. Awesome. And we know we measure it differently now. We've, you know, we've fudged the figures to, to hide how we, how people are, are registered as well. So, you know, it's, wow. so, you know, the numbers, as Rory will tell you, is much worse than, it, than, than, than what the headline figure is. It is that what's significant is of those 13,000 or 4,000 children, um, almost 4,000 children with their families, which is really, truly shocking. Um, and that is a point in time. That's just one month, you know, over the, the you know, years, you're seeing thousands and thousands of children go through emergency accommodation. And as Tony says, it doesn't capture the hidden homelessness. And, and one of the stark figures from Ireland is the level of eviction notices that have been issued to tenants. And I think this is a big issue. And, and you know, you highlighted it during the pandemic. There was those measures like eviction bans that were brought in place, rent freezes. But when those eviction bans were lifted, there seems to have been this reaction um, from landlords that, you know, we are... Um, essentially trying to, because I think it's it's linked to rising rents. They want to get rid of lower paying tenants, get in higher paying tenants, or what we're seeing in Ireland, they convert them into Airbnbs and they convert them into short term lets or they're selling the property and they want to get this higher price. So they just evict the tenant. Um, and we've seen the last 12 months, 20,000 notices to quit issued to private tenants, which is just... Like we have, as I say, over and over, and no one really seems to be taking this serious or picking it up. That's more evictions than happened um, in any year during the Irish famine. And yet are, are we just accept it. And uh, is this the case happening in other countries as well? This scale of evictions of private tenants. Do you see this? Wow. Uh, I didn't realize the figures uh, coming. Is that for all of Ireland? 20, That's for 000? all of Ireland, yeah, yeah. It's still huge. That's huge. Um, well, as in, it's the south. It's, the it's all, all the Republic yes. of Ireland, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, am I seeing that elsewhere? Well, in Europe, they have um, more protections, obviously. Other parts of Europe, I should say, more protections than Ireland. I mean, I think that in most jurisdictions, once the moratoriums have been lifted, there has been an uptick in evictions, of course, because it would go from nothing to or very few. Um, even during moratoriums, evictions were happening in many jurisdictions, but um, not quite the uptick that I think you're seeing in in Ireland. Although I know that in the, the US, they're, um, they've managed in certain jurisdictions Los Angeles, for example, to keep those moratoriums in still. I think they're just lifting now. Um, and so I think they anticipate the same thing to happen, especially in zones where, you know, Airbnb can flourish, um, yeah. where, um, landlords have been sort of not, um, They've been filing evictions, but they can't move on them, if you know what I mean. Mm, so they're registering yeah. them so that when the moratoriums get lifted, they can just move forward with them. Um, here in Canada, uh, in my own province, um, there's a huge backlog at the Landlord-Tenant Tribunal. And that's, in part, that was because of the moratorium. And now they're trying to push through all of these um, evictions, et cetera, and, and other matters. And so there's this huge backlog. So they aren't happening just because administratively we can't do them. Um, but I mean, I really, I think that we should be starting, um, some kind of a global movement around no evictions into homelessness. I know that doesn't solve it completely, um, because it, you still are going up, you know, you're still having to argue against an eviction. But in Spain, they have, and, and certainly the UN jurisprudence is that, uh, no, that it would be violative of international human rights law for an eviction to result in homelessness. And so in Spain, they have like a whole system in place. It doesn't work, but they have a system in place to intervene so that when a landlord files for eviction, 
the adjudicator cannot rule in favor of that eviction if the tenant is going to fall into homelessness. Instead, what has to happen is the tenant gets hooked up with a social worker and the social worker helps the tenant either negotiate with the landlord to remain in the unit or helps the tenant at least find another unit that they can afford. And so um, I think we have to start pushing for things like that. I know it's not a, a salve, um, but um, it would be no, I, something. Yeah, it would. And Belgium similarly has a, you can't evict someone into homelessness. And also if someone is, they have a number of conditions around evictions. Like for example, if someone is of ill health, if they can't find anywhere, which essentially you can't evict them, if they can't find anywhere else that's of suitable accommodation or affordable to them, they can't be evicted. And there's a whole number of measures they have. They also have um, rent arrears support. So, and that is a big issue and a big issue in Ireland where uh, people have been evicted for rent arrears. And of course, as you know, in many cases, people are, you know, rents are rising so much. And that's the other thing we've seen in Ireland, you know, rents rise and continue to rise. Um, and this argument from continuing, and I see it in Australia, for example, I have a brother who lives in Australia and he's always sending me over stuff going on there with the, uh, their housing crisis. But the build to rent, the REITs, the real estate investors are being promoted as the key solution. They'll build the rental stock that's needed. And we've seen in Ireland, still we hear the um, mainstream, you know, economists, we hear, you know, the policymakers saying, oh, we have to continue to support the real estate investment trust. They'll provide the, the you know, the supply of rental housing. And I'm going, what's the point in building, you know, luxury housing um, you know, housing that's at, you know, two and a half, three thousand euro per month for a two bedroom apartment that nobody can afford. And people are basically pushing themselves into poverty or the state ends up subsidizing like that's not a sustainable supply of housing. And it's I, it, it seems to me that we're still, as you said earlier, we are still caught and captured by the big real estate funds in terms of policy. I mean, you've gone to the heart of the matter and certainly the heart of the matter in, in the country I live in. Um, big feuds about this issue uh, and remarkable because it's within the sector itself. In other words, a lot of housing folks themselves are running around saying, oh, we don't want to offend these guys, the REITs, the real estate investment trusts and the developers. We don't want to offend them too much because we really need them to help yeah. us solve the housing crisis. So in other words, the very people that have caused the crisis are going to solve the crisis. I mean, come on. It's, yeah. it's remarkable to me. And the idea that we can build our way out of a housing crisis is um, foolish, I think. It's, it's just simply not true. In some jurisdictions, you can look at where there has been a healthy supply, a healthy increase in supply, and yet housing costs are still escalating. And I like to use Japan as an example. I happen to be reading about it recently. They have a 17% surplus in housing, right? So they're building 17% more housing than their population. That's yeah. a that's a pretty significant amount. And then people cannot afford to live in Tokyo. So why is that? Right? I mean, it's it's this this insistence that um building any old supply is going to somehow have this trickle down effect and and lower prices. And I mean, we know these actors all too well. They are not going to build if they believe the valuation of their properties is going to fall over time. That's completely antithetical to the business model. And so they know that the more they build, the more money they're going to make. But they know that. We, we, do, we, so, we, we get that from economists here a lot. You know, we just haven't got the supply side right. And we've been told this for a long time. And if you look at this study, this someone produced an extra 20,000 homes and property prices fell by 0.5 of a percent. And you, Rory, you know who I'm referring to. And, and uh, But, but what, I, what worries me now is where you're both talking about the financial model. The financial model now is because they're sitting there and they are saying, Lalani, and it is Global Fund saying it, oh, it's getting a bit more expensive to, to build. It's getting a bit more, rates are a bit more. And states are coming in with subsidies to the tune of like I think our our um, new um, minister for housing is talking about an additional Rory correct me if I'm wrong about sixty eight thousand per unit of a uh, of subsidies and breaks Be between up to one hundred and forty four thousand subsidy 
per unit for private developers, which will include, of course, investors and, and real estate investor funds. You're absolutely right, Tony. This is a big issue now in Ireland where we have, which is back to the question of supply, do these guys provide an actual supply of housing? Um, and, and importantly, what people aren't questioning, is it a supply of affordable housing? Is it, is it a supply of the right type of housing? Is it you know, community, mixed community housing for different ages, or is it all just aimed at the high-end, high-income professional, which, of course, we know the answer to that. Um, but that issue now, they're saying, okay, rising costs, material costs due to inflation, plus the rising cost of finance means that they can't build. So we now have a situation where we've 70,000, 80,000 units um, that have planning permission, but are not being built. And we see a number of big... Uh, sites held by global real estate funds not being built on um, and the pressure is coming on the government to subsidize which they are going to and so rather this is the big we're having a budget coming up where they say oh we're going to allocate an additional 8 billion I think they're talking potentially to putting into a land the land development agency but not to set up a public construction company but to subsidize the developers and real estate funds to it's, make it financially viable for them rather than seeing prices or rents fall. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is the model in Canada. It's the model in the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. New Zealand has tried some some more interesting things. But I really, I, I mean, I, I recently wrote a paper with the economist Mariana Mazzucato. Um, and it's, it's a, I don't know if, you know, listeners will know who Mariana is. She's a very well-known economist. She's... Yeah. Um, She's pretty cool. She has the ear of many governments. And she had this idea and wrote a book about the mission economy and that we need to tackle the big challenges in this world using a mission model, like sending someone to the moon. So we took her mission um, approach with a human rights approach and said, this is the way to address the housing challenge that most countries are facing. But one of the takeaways from that related to what you were just saying, Rory, is that there should be public value for public dollars. If if the government is subsidi- subsidizing, the Irish government is subsidizing to the tune of 144,000, uh, what currency do you use? Euros. Euros. Um, what's the public value for those public dollars, right? And if it's just luxury or in the case of Canada, for example, the government does the same thing, subsidizes these actors to produce housing and not social housing. And if it's affordable housing, it's for 10 years. Mm. It can be affordable for 10 years. They get these massive subsidies and all they have to do. And affordability is based on a percentage of market rent, not based on what households can afford. And so they're getting like 10 years. We know as you get older, you start realizing 10 years is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And and after 10 years, they can start making uber profits again. Well, Lalani, we introduced enhanced leasing, which is a 25-year term, whereby but they were guaranteed that they could increase the rent by 4% every year. And at the end of it, the state would effectively pay them this this rental, this this market rent, and then they would never own it. The, the fund would still own it at the end of 25 years. Um, yeah. And when they closed that loophole, they said, well, not a loophole, it was policy. When they decided yeah. to start um, getting rid of that, phase that out, they said, well, well what do we do now? They said, well, we'll actually have to subsi- make, make it up on the other end by increasing, as Rory said, the subsidies. But what worries me is, you know, huge, huge conglomerates like Blackstone and these, 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 these monstrosities can move markets. Like you've seen what they've done to Arizona. We've seen what they've done in, in, in other, you know, major U.S. cities that don't make the headlines like California, uh, uh, like L.A. and New York. And when you look at it that way, like... Dublin already has a commercial um, property crisis. We're just not talking about it because we've been building the wrong stuff and that no one wants, that doesn't help people can't live in it. Yet we're still now going to say we'll subsidize them and continue with this model. And are we, I picked Dublin because that's obviously where I am, but everywhere I see it, it's playing out the same bloody song. It's the same song and no one is actually, no one wants to play a different tune. When, when will the message get through? Well, I I don't know. And I tell you, when I take to the airwaves or write opinion pieces uh, or make submissions challenging that, I get a lot of hate. I mean, it is like 
it's not just neoliberal hate, which I expect, you know, fine. Mm. But I, even from within the, the housing sector, I get a lot of pushback, like, uh, you know, from, from people saying, well, you don't attack supply. We do need new supply. And we all agree that we need supply that is deeply affordable and social. I mean, I, you know, we all agree with that, but I do not agree. And I will not agree that you can just, <clears throat> excuse me, say build, build, build without being very specific, especially in light of climate change, in light of the fact yeah. that all new builds, even the greenest new builds contribute to CO2 emissions from both the building and the operation of the building, right? So the construction itself creates CO2 emissions and the operation of buildings, even the greenest buildings still creates CO2 emissions. 40% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from the built environment, right? So, so if we're going to build new, then it has to be very strategic right? For those most in need, not just this general build, luxury, high end with public money, right? It has to be purposeful. And then what people really don't want to talk about, I do not understand it, is what about harnessing existing resources and making them deeply affordable in social housing. And by that, I mean, yes, vacant units, Airbnb units. But I also mean, what about starting to challenge these financial actors and say, you have to convert a percentage of your portfolio to social housing if you want to receive these public monies or government monies of any sort or tax breaks or tax waivers that that is the price of doing housing business because housing is a human right. When I start saying that, people think I'm completely radical and I get a lot of hate. Oh, the, the, yeah. with that, our, our Mr. for Housing said to me, don't be so ideological, Tony. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a major question because it comes back to the whole built environment because as, as Tony was raising there, you know, the issue of offices and we've so much of speculative, you know, real estate investment in offices, hotels that are built purely speculatively and on the basis that they will create a market in and of themselves, that big companies will lease them, that obviously, you know, tourists uh, will come to them. And they're not built on the basis of, well, what do we need and what do populations actually need in terms of housing, in terms of community space, in terms of social enterprise space, like the whole use of our the level of vacant buildings, derelict land, the whole use of our land and property in a way <laughs> needs to be put to the interests of the common good. And, and that is the radical question. And that is the question that you're also bringing up around, for example, turning around and whether they're receiving subsidies or not, that private companies who are running these big housing operations should have to have 50% affordable housing and that their rents should actually be controlled properly, their market rents. And like, you know, we're seeing the proposal in Germany for, you know, the freezing of rents uh, for five years, I think it is. Um, and, you know, this real idea that actually, you know, th- we can't have this, you know, allowance that our land, our property and existing housing are just treated as commercial profit extracting assets. They're, they're, they're all potentially homes and therefore they need to be treated like that. Yeah, I mean, that's just bang on. And and the other thing, the other question I have is because that does require means radical intervention, as they say, will be called and are called all sorts of terrible things like communists and all sorts. You know, <laughs> God forbid um, one would ever think outside of the capitalist mindset. Um, but, you know, these are the measures that are needed. And increasingly, people are realizing and particularly when you link them to climate change that actually, yeah, we do need systemic changes. And as you mentioned earlier, not just um not just like tokenistic or tinkering around the edges. But the question, the proposal I did earlier in the summer with uh, Phil Murphy was for a national public building company in Ireland. Um, And I was surprised that, you know, outside of Helsinki and Glasgow has a small company, there's not many countries where you have a public construction company. And it seems to me logical that if we accept that housing is a human right, housing is a basic human need, like health and education, we provide public doctors, public teachers. Why do we not 
you know, hire and have public carpenters, uh, you know, public factories that build housing, public uh, quantity surveyors, architects, engineers, who are all employed with guaranteeing and providing a supply of housing. Why don't we do that? Well, because it's too communist. <laughs> you're joking, but you're joking. But wasn't it, I think it was only Lula da Silva recently said they, 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 they insult me by calling me a communist and a socialist. I am. You know, yeah, so. Exactly. No, but I mean, I really I really think that that's part of it. I think that the, the end of the Cold War, etc. brought with it this uber capitalism actually i mean it, it, it to some degree right this u- this uber celebration of capitalism as if it was producing these wonderful results it's, it's so ironic right um i you know in from from my vantage i guess i don't really care who's doing the building as long as the what's being produced is social housing and deeply affordable housing that's tied to household income and not tied to markets. So I don't care. The The fact of the matter is it's more likely to occur if you have a national building company mm. than if you just leave it to the privates. Now, in some jurisdictions, they have they're private companies, but they're not for profits and they're community driven organizations and they're doing the building and, and the managing of some of, of, uh, Nonprofit housing, basically. So, I, you know, that model can work too. Although I have noticed that, you know, sometimes nonprofits can be as discriminatory and, and as market driven as the privates. And so we have to, we have to be super careful. And mm. of course, the nonprofits are going to be hating me now too. No, no, that's uh, <laughs> like, just, just Google the UK's approved housing bodies stories over the last well, few well, months. Is, it's terrible. Is, yeah, no, that is the, the warning you know, of um, jurisdictions and countries that force the non-profits to operate on a market commercial basis. Whereas in Ireland so far, we have largely maintained non-profits are charities. They are operating. They're not to be commercial, um, which is a very positive thing. But now, increasingly, they are been pushed um, to take on risk in terms of, of financing. The new cost rental, affordable rental model is open to uh, private equity, which we, is very, we, very can, dangerous. Can we point out, by the way, Rory, our cost rental is very different than Vienna's as well. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it's not and, and, the same. Yeah, and, and it, it's not the same. And the issue, I think, for me is it seems to me that it's like if we have a housing crisis, you know, all over the world in so many countries, we're all repeating the same mistake, assuming that the market will deliver housing. And yet the solution, when you say, well, the state should do it in a much greater role, it's like, ah, no, 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 you can't do that. Yeah. Okay, so we're just going yeah. to be in perpetual housing crisis then. That's right. That's a really, no, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and the idea that states can't lead is unbelievable to me. Mm. Like the, the role of government is to, is to make sure that their population is experiencing well-being that's the role of government and when the when governments see that these actors are undermining well-being it's so clear that they are undermining well-being the business model itself is not about well-being at all and it's and it is based on undermining well-being because it the business model of these guys is to raise rents to evict and to increase the valuation of their properties. Well, really, they do those two things to increase the valuation of their properties. And so, so the idea that governments can't intervene for, for some reason is remarkable to me. It's like still we're in this, uh, this place where it's as if the market can exist and produce well being on its own. And, and yeah. it's clearly not. Mm. I mean, the, the, the homelessness stats that you provided at the top of this podcast were are shocking right yeah. why are why are why is your government not just completely ashamed of itself yeah for they produce, they're producing this homelessness yeah. right yeah. governments are producing homelessness and that's a language i'm starting to use more and more and i notice that people are quite responsive to it i think it's really excellent lilani because we have say we say when uh, this current government are effectively 13 years in power in terms of Fine Gael, this is their third iteration, 
they've increased homelessness by over 850%. So so they've produced homelessness as you say, but on on the uh, on the on the very real side of what of what housing means, they still won't they won't put that toothpaste back in the tube because they're still at this idea that you know it, it was the it was an asset and you know again going back to what you wrote and what you told them in 2019, it's played out, but it's played out worse than we could have imagined. But we get told, unfortunately, and Rory will back me up on this, that Ireland is an economic miracle where, um, you know, our GDP is the envy of the world. And, and, and yet, while we've had, you know, growth that w- is, would literally make Jeff Bezos blush the amount of money that we're having in, running in budget surpluses, we've actually in- increased deprivation rates and inequality. So it's and, and, and when you look at it, the question becomes, you say governments are producing homelessness. The question becomes, when you have homelessness rising and you have essentially a housing crisis now that is that I have been highlighting since 2015, that's eight years of a housing crisis. So crisis is supposed to be a short-term thing, that the housing crisis is policy and homelessness is policy. If you have something that's going on for eight years, that's not a crisis, that's a structural embedded feature of your economy and society. That, that that's so so well put, Rory. I that's exactly right. And it's it is this upside down world that we're in where and and we have to understand it as upside down world. If I said to the average person, "Oh hey, um uh Zimbabwe is showing really good economic growth." That person who hears that would think to themselves, oh, wow, economic growth in Zimbabwe. Okay, so maybe that means fewer people living in poverty. Maybe that means uh, fewer informal settlements. Mm. When we say that in the context of Ireland or Canada or the US, oh, strong economic growth, why are we not seeing lower rates of poverty, lower rates of homelessness? We have to understand, as you just so, I, I love the way you said it. I, I can't reiterate it because I won't say it as well as you did, Rory, but we are in a place where our, where our economy is based on the production of homelessness, housing insecurity, and, and, and economic inequality, for sure. Yeah. Right? And just on the question of the right to housing, because we have seen there's two questions. One is in terms of Ireland. You made, you know, Tony referred to the letter you wrote in 2019 and you urged the government to take a human rights approach to housing. Um, My assessment is we haven't seen that. We have yet to see any policy reference the human right to housing, um, any housing policy or economic policy be assessed from a human rights perspective in Ireland we're waiting for a housing commission to bring forward a recommendation on a right to housing. We really hope that it does very, very soon. Um, where do you, like, and you know, and we've discussed this before here, that I believe, and, and others in Ireland have made the case, that we need a right to housing in our constitution. To me, that seems to be absolutely necessary. Um, how important is it that Ireland should put a right to housing in its constitution and law? It's essential. Um, when I wrote about the guidelines for the implementation of the right to housing and rights-based housing strategies, the first and and in the shift directives on the financialization of housing, which I wrote uh, after I was rapporteur, uh, the first move is always to legislate the right to housing. Constitutional recognition is, of course, um, ideal. And there's a, there's a number of reasons and it's not it's not actually just because for every right there should for every potential violation of a right there should be a remedy that's part mm-hmm. of it right that that human rights are illusory if you can't claim them somewhere yeah. we know that that's why it's important but it's also important because it's a signal from the government that they're going to do things differently and that they believe in the well-being of people through housing, and that they won't just kowtow to financial interests that mine housing for its monetary value. It, it For the individual person who's suffering housing disadvantage, to know that their government 
recognizes that housing is a human right and puts it in their constitution is is a very important um, move. It literally for individuals and. I remember in Canada, we don't have a constitutional right to housing, but we do have a legislated right, which is maybe the next best thing. Yeah. Um, but I remember uh, I was uh, the executive director of a different organization at the time when this happened. I was the UN rapporteur and one of my board members who had lived her entire life in poverty called me just as that bill, our legislation was being passed and she was crying and she said, it was so meaningful to her that her government had finally recognized that all of the claims she was making as a single mother living in deplorable housing conditions, living in homelessness, all of the claims she was making were not her being some crazy woman, but rather was her making her human rights claims. So just the way governments can can mirror the personal experience by recognizing housing as a human right. Because people who suffer violations of the right to housing, they know that they are suffering a rights violation, right? They don't articulate it that way necessarily, but they know that 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 something in is intrinsically wrong with what yeah. with the society they're living in. And so so I think it's hugely important. And I think I, I can't say that the time is ripe in, in Ireland because it's overripe <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I really do hope that that's the direction, um, the Republic of Ireland moves in. Right. Just Tony. Lilani, one, one last thing for me, and it's kind of feel like we're sitting in this three of us here, but as a fourth person in the room, and it is climate change. You've referenced it a few times on this. Uh, you know, we see across the, the world people on the march. I was, I interviewed the woman who wrote the report into the awful events at the, uh, at the Saudi Yemen border where, uh, the, the Saudis were butchering people and uh, like killing, murdering people. And the people are on the move because of climate action. And that is going to put people there saying, well, you know, this nonsense of look after our own starts to creep in. And you mentioned New York earlier, Rory, and that's starting to raise its head in ugly ways in, in New York as well. Um, climate action should be the way to say, well, actually, uh, if we do this properly, we'll create green jobs, we'll, we'll build the economy out of it, and we'll build houses that are, you know, where people can live in places where they need to. G- give me your kind of sense of how that can you can you see a way where that crisis is actually an opportunity to win the argument on housing? Oh God, that's rather complicated at the end of a podcast. Uh, <laughs> that's huge. Tony was hanging on uh, to that one for the whole podcast. Exactly. I've, been sitting on, I've been sitting on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's so. It. I mean, sure. Uh, it could present itself as an opportunity, just like COVID could have ended global homelessness, right? Just as the global financial crisis should have completely reoriented our our, our, our finance system as it relates to housing, right? So what can I say? It could, but it could also be completely exploited for the wrong interests. And we see that that's okay. Look at what happened in Hawaii, right? Mm. Uh, and of course, I feel a, a a real affiliation with Hawaii because my name is Leilani is Hawaiian, although I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was watching closely, and of course, what we're going to see unfold there is disaster capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, climate disaster capitalism, and so you know, I'd like to think that it would be some big wake-up call and we can't have people on the move constantly. It's it's not good for the people and it's very complicated uh, for different jurisdictions, right? And and though I don't accept the, um, well, we have to look after our own first argument. No, we look after everyone, <laughs> right? I, I, I On the other hand, States are really barely doing what they need to do with populations as they exist in their own countries, right, in this point in time. And so, you know, I'd like to think that that climate change would be some big wake-up call and um, climate mitigation and adaptation strategies would be put into place so that we don't have all these, you know, people moving, that that we might actually reduce our our emissions and, you know, countries around the world. But 
Yeah, but you're, like, you're, you're you're in Canada, and this far and uh, the forest fires and the things are just the norm now. It's 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 accepted. I will argue against myself for a moment. You say disaster capitalism. The first thing that jumps into my mind, second reference to them today is that uh, Blackstone are now you know firmly behind the war in Ukraine, but not for uh, not for any uh, altruistic reasons. They are simply there because they want to profit from the the aftermath in it, and this is what. So yeah. so I'm sorry to, to there you go. But I, the I, other done. the other side, and and to bring it in a more positive direction, uh, and and does link directly to it that within the concern for climate change and within the people seeing disaster capitalism, neoliberalism, financialization unfold and its impacts, devastating impacts over the last 40 years, there is also a reaction against that, a public reaction. We're seeing it in Ireland around housing in particular, the huge shift in people's views on housing. I think, you know, without doubt, there will be support for the referendum, majority support, you know, people for a referendum on a right to housing, this viewing as housing as home and a human right rather than asset. And that, you know, what is your sense of where that global, because we are seeing changes, you know, your work and the shift, you know, the cities amongst different cities, you know, there is a shift in some policymakers in the public and seeing actually, you know, we need a different way of doing things and a different economy and society based around meeting people's needs and the climate's needs. And in the area of housing, um, where is, do you see that? Is there a growing sense and movements and action around the right to housing or what's happening? I, I absolutely think that there's a trend toward understanding that the current situation is not sustainable from a climate perspective, but also from a human perspective, that something has to change, that unaffordability is now the norm. In I think people recognize that that this is that that this isn't acceptable. In a growing way. Now, obviously, not the people who are involved in the business of housing, but ev- just everyday people. The I do find the number of articles in newspapers, social media, content, etc., is definitely way more engaged on the housing issue than, for example, in 2014 when I started as UN rapporteur. Yeah. Um, the idea of housing as a human right or if people use other language, housing is, you know, common good or uh, should have public value. Um, that's much more um, um, uh, popular, I would say. So those are really good signs. I, I find, as always, there's a disconnect between um, popular sentiment and politicians. Yeah. And, and you know, in so many countries, there's a, a, a close relationship between politicians and the built environment. A lot of them are owners, investors, yeah, etc. Yeah, landlords, etc. So, so there's work to be done there. But Rory, I think you're right that there there is cause for just a a, a wee bit of optimism. Um, because oh, we'll grab I, onto that. <laughs> yeah, I mean the conversations <laughs> we'll are changing and. Type. And, yeah. you know, they're publishing our op-eds, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And uh, listen, before we go, one last question. You were in Palestine recently. Do you want to tell us for a few minutes just on your experience? Sure. And the, the timing is so fantastic because, as in fact, yesterday we launched the work that I was doing in Palestine. It is the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, um, for what that's worth. Um, I wrote a a report uh, on behalf of the Norwegian Refugee Council, the largest uh, nonprofit um, organization working with refugees, and they have a big presence in in Palestine, um, really asking the question, how can Palestinians living in a particular area of the West Bank that is fully occupied, it's called, unfortunately, Area C, it is where all the Israeli settlements are, how can Palestinians living in Area C have a viable future when the planning regime that's in place is one built by Israel for Israelis and for Israeli mm-hmm. settlements? And so I had the opportunity to revision a planning system and to use human rights and humanitarian law to inform a new planning system that could be designed for Palestinians by Palestinians and give them a future because they've been on a fast track to de-development, literally de-development. So people living in caves, people living in homes under tarps, 
um, people being evicted from the most basic rudimentary structures many, many times over, um, a lack of schools, lack of access to food. I mean, really, you know, they've been under occupation for so long, 50 plus years, and no development during that time, which is in fact contrary to humanitarian law. The, the occupier in humanitarian law, so Israel in this case, is meant to ensure the well-being of the population they are occupying. It's a little-known fact, right? Yeah. Uh, we take it as a given that the occupier can oppress, but in fact, that is not the case under humanitarian law. And so, in any event, I went there, I investigated, I researched. I'd been there before. Um, I've done work there before. And we wrote this report. It's called Area C is Everything. It's a very fertile area and, and could be a really rich area for to help Palestinians develop. So, in any event, we launched the report yesterday. You can go to the Norwegian Refugee Council website, and it's all there. Great. Uh, yeah, and we'll try to roll that out with, um, in particular, donor countries in the European Union to get them on board to help Palestinians, you know, develop a decent life for themselves. Great, great. Well, listen, Leilani, as always, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on. Uh, really stimulating discussion and just, yeah, really interesting to reflect on it and where things are going. Um, and we'll have you back on. It'll be great to chat again very, very soon. Thanks, Rory and Tony. I loved I love talking with you guys. I think you're my favorite podcast, maybe next to my own. Yes, uh, your own is better. But ju- just <laughs> no, uh, it's not. Just for listen- <laughs> listeners' benefit, um, um, uh, we will be going back to Gaza actually with my um oh. regular voice. Mahmoud will be back this week, and our friend Isam, uh, who was regular and has has actually got promoted in the, in the AP as a, in, in a new role. So congratulations to Isam because I know you guys do listen to uh, to these pods. So so well done, buddy. We we're we're uh, with delight to see someone so getting a bit of good news we'll, we'll end it on an uproar absolutely yeah and if people want to check out the shift which is Leilani's uh, director of that movement on housing they can go to the shift.org as far as I'm aware is that right Leilani yeah, uh, make, the shift, make the shift make the shift yep. make the shift.org yeah brilliant and listen um, I hope really hope you, you got uh, a lot out of that I did and listeners we are an independent produced um, podcast by none other than Holy Tony himself, uh, Tony Groves <laughs> of the uh, Tortoise Shack, uh, Tortoise Chamber, and yeah. uh, the Echo Shack. Troublemaker. <laughs> the Echo Grove. Uh, so if you can, go over to patreon.com forward slash Echo Grove and give what you can each month to the Echo uh, Grove Shack Chamber. Don't mind him. And- Listen. <laughs> Listen, folks, we're leaving it there because he's trying to get my blood to boil. Uh, <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Share it around. Please, please share it around. Do, do me, so much. If, if do one thing for Rory, a lot of you recommend people on social media. I found looking at the analytics, people who recommend it on, on WhatsApp get a lot more uh, listen through. So so send it to a friend if you listen to this and you're getting something out of it. WhatsApp is, 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 is people take their recommendations much better than they do or all like or retweet. So go with that for, if you can. R- yeah. R- R- Rory will thank you personally. He'll write you exactly. a personal note. And also, yeah, no, no, it is important. And I am, and I I must, you know, people are sharing their stories with me um, all the time. And, you know, I had some pretty, like even this week, some pretty tough ones about people sharing, you know, facing fertility issues because of the housing crisis. There was a person who was made homeless uh, this week who was in a wheelchair and trying to access emergency accommodation. Uh, people sending me, you know, UCD students trying to find accommodation, looking for a mattress or a floor to sleep on. Um, I'm sharing them as much as I can and I am reading them. And sorry if I don't get a chance to get back to you, but I am highlighting them. So do please keep sending them in. It is so important. We hear those stories. Thank you so much. Um, and listen, thank you, listeners. We will talk to you all very, very soon.